Hello everyone, happy leap day and welcome to Humble Mysteries, the podcast about ordinary people and extraordinary events. Before we get started, I would just like to give you some context about myself and why I decided to dive into this. My name is Paola, I'm 34 and I was born and raised in Croatia and I still live here. I love true crime but have lately felt a certain saturation in the true crime world, with stories being told mostly and almost exclusively about cases in the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and some other English-speaking countries. This is, of course, completely expected and normal, as most of the true crime podcasters are, in fact, English-speaking individuals who research cases in English. But my native language is Croatian, and my English is mm, decent enough. So I thought I would start bringing forward these cases that I keep hearing about that are equally as captivating and interesting and I can research these cases from Croatia and our neighboring countries in Croatian and then present it in English and hopefully give them a bit of a platform and allow these victims stories to be told as well. So without further ado, let's get started on this journey. It is just my luck to get a cold as I'm starting a new podcast. Um, I'm a little bit nasal. I'm a little bit stuffy. I hope you don't mind. I apologize. When I was still thinking about starting this podcast, my big wish and one of my big goals was to bring forward a lot of cases, especially criminal cases, that originated in Croatia, where I'm from, and also some neighboring countries. Croatia is a small country. At just around 4 million residents, the crime statistics are pretty encouraging. We can talk about corruption all day, petty crimes, other misdemeanors. But when it comes to homicides, Croatia is really up there, boasting a pretty decent statistic of 0.8 intentional homicides per 100,000 residents in 2021. So the crimes of such nature when they do happen, have a tendency to completely captivate the nation. They become the most talked about thing on the news. In conversations people have in their everyday lives, they consume social media and conversations in online places. And they usually take forever to bring to some kind of conclusion or justice. One of the most known and notorious true crime cases in Croatia definitely is the murder of Antonia Bilic, who at just 17 got her dreams and plans brutally taken from her. Her disappearance started what is still to this day the biggest search and rescue operation in Croatia. This is her story. Antonia Bilic was born February 22, 1994, Her family lived in a small village called Kričke. It is a tiny village of barely 300 people located in the unforgiving landscape of Dalmatian hinterland next to the river Cikola. During the Croatian War of Independence from 1991 to 1995, Kričke was under Serbian occupation, so the family had to move. In 1991, they moved to the refugee camp in Makarska, Then, in 1993, they were moved to the coastal town of Bashkavoda, close to Makarska, and it is in Makarska where Antonia was eventually born in 1994. Antonia's parents, Milka and Mila, have three older children as well, two daughters and a son. Her father served in the Croatian army during the War of Independence, and her mother worked as a hotel maid. In 1996, they moved back to Kričke, and the family had to start from zero. The father retired as a war veteran, and the mother worked until she got breast cancer. The house they lived in was very humble, with no bathroom. Antonia didn't have a computer, and her family didn't have the internet. Now, to paint the picture of this village, let me repeat that it has around 300 residents, or at least that was the number back in 2011. I assume that number is even lower today. The village has a church, a cemetery, and a bocce ball court. 
Antonia had no peers or friends in the village as it was mostly older people who lived there. And Antonia's parents did not own a car. There was a bus line that went to the town called Drnish once or maybe twice a day. But it was very irregular and unreliable. That's why most people who needed to go to nearby towns used hitchhiking as their main way of getting there. Now, before we go further, I would just like to explain that hitchhiking isn't such a big deal in places like that. Our modern mindsets, especially big city mindsets, can't fathom getting into cars with strangers, and I understand that. But this is a remote area of Croatia that suffered a lot during the war and was impoverished and almost forgotten. There's no infrastructure and just not enough people to establish regular public transport. I know this can be difficult to understand, but for the sake of this case, I suggest you leave your prejudices surrounding hitchhiking behind. Antonia's family, as well as all the villagers and people involved, said that hitchhiking was just normal and it wasn't frowned upon. Antonia's mother even recalled hitchhiking with Antonia on multiple occasions and said that their one rule was to not get into trucks. And she even recalled an anecdote when Antonia told her not to stop truckers, to which her mother responded that she couldn't climb into a cabin if one of them stopped anyway. So with that in mind, let's go back to Antonia. She finished elementary school in Drnish, which was the closest town about seven kilometers away from their village. And after that, she enrolled in high school and chose the three-year program for working in retail. Now, Croatian high schools are either vocational schools where the focus is on the subjects, helping you learn a trade, and their job is to prepare you for the job market during those three or four-year programs. And uh, there are also schools called gymnasiums, which are high schools primarily focused on preparing students for further education, colleges, universities, and so on. The program Antonia was finishing was specifically for retail work, And as part of the program, she had mandatory practical work or apprenticeship in a retail store. Antonia was a good student. She was said to be a decent student with an average record and her behavior was exemplary. Her head teacher remembers her quite fondly. She was a very regular student with barely any absences except when she would accompany her mother for medical checkups in Sibenik. Antonia and her classmates had their prom earlier that year in May and she wore a beautiful red dress and had her hair all done up, looking very grown up and beautiful. She loved R&B and Croatian pop music and she kept a diary. Her friends said she also loved singing and was a good singer and her teachers and classmates encouraged her to sing at a singing competition or a talent show. She would smoke on occasion, but didn't really go out that much. She also didn't go to sleepovers with her friends, as that was just not something her group of friends did together. From all we know, Antonia was just a normal teenage girl with plans for the future. She had plans to finish additional educational courses in the city of Split, and she was probably planning her life just like everyone else. Her two older sisters lived in the coastal town of Zadar, and I'm sure it was Antonia's wish as well to move out of Kričke and find her future somewhere else. Which is why this case is so tragic. Because before Antonia could do any of that, before she could even graduate high school, she was gone. On June 7th, 2011, between 8 and 9 in the morning, an unnamed young woman was hitchhiking for a ride in a small town called Much. A truck stopped and the driver offered her a ride. She was confused because he was clearly going in the opposite direction. She said, no, I'm going in a different direction. The driver then offered to turn his vehicle around and take her to wherever she was going. Again, she said no and the driver drove away. She didn't know it then, but that probably saved her life. 
As he's driving away, she gets a good look at his face. He is pale, dark-haired with deep-set eyes, and one of his top teeth is missing. This would be the first physical description of a suspect in the case we're about to discuss. That same morning, the Bilich family had breakfast together. Antonia and her mother then rode with a neighbor to the town of Dernish. Antonia was supposed to go to the retail store where she was finishing her apprenticeship and her mother was going to Shibenik with the neighbor. It is likely that after Antonia was done, she came back to the usual hitchhiking spot right next to the bridge over the Chikola River. At the crossroads there, one road led to Split, and the first village on that road was hers, Krichken. At 9.50 that morning, Frane Bilic, a neighbor of the Bilic family, was riding in his car, driving from Drnish to Kričke. Driving in front of him, in the opposite direction, is a truck. Right after crossing the bridge over Chikola, the truck abruptly breaks and starts making a U-turn on that narrow two-way road. Frane, the neighbor, overtakes the truck and is now driving in front of the truck in the same direction as the truck. The driver finally makes the turn and starts driving in the opposite direction, now right behind Frane. The truck slows down and the neighbor can see in his rearview mirror a tall, dark-haired girl wearing jeans entering the truck. He recognizes her. It is his neighbor, Antonia, or Tonka as he called her. He saw the driver but didn't memorize the license plate. He also mixed up the colors of the truck when giving his testimony, which will become important later in this case. Had he made it to the bridge just 20 seconds earlier, he would have happily, like many times before, given a ride to Antonia right to her doorstep. It also appeared that the driver learned from his mistake earlier that morning, and this time he didn't offer the girl to turn around. He just went and did it, and then stopped and offered her to come in. Right across the street from the bridge, there is a cafe. Two eyewitnesses in the cafe saw the truck driver's weird U-turn maneuver and a girl entering the truck. At this point, we have four eyewitnesses who have seen the truck, and three of them were also the last ones to see Antonia alive. After that, no one has seen her exit the truck. No one has seen her come home that day. No one has ever seen her again. It was afternoon when Antonia's mother finally made it back home. When she didn't find Antonia there, she asked her husband if she had come back home. He said that no, he didn't see her. Her mother called Antonia's cell phone at 3.38 p.m. Someone picked up. She heard a short, ruffling noise, and then the call disconnected. After that, the calls went straight to voicemail. Antonia's phone was switched off. Her parents were getting extremely worried when the night came and Antonia didn't come home. Despite her never spending a night at a friend's house, they hoped that maybe she was at one of her friend's houses. The next day she was supposed to hand in her graduation paper, so maybe she stayed with a friend who owns a computer to finish it. The next morning, her mother couldn't wait anymore, so she went to Antonia's school, hoping that she would find her there or learn that Antonia came in to hand in that paper. But no one had seen her or heard from her, and it is then that her mother finally decided to call the police. The police immediately started the search for the missing Antonia. Very publicly, her older sisters Anna and Katarina decided to advocate for Antonia. They basically became the family PR. Wasting no time, they started a Facebook group in which they asked for information about their missing sister. The group reached 30,000 members in just a few days. They posted regular updates on their own personal Facebook profiles. They organized public gatherings where flyers and posters of their sister were distributed. They encouraged citizens to put up the posters around towns they lived in all over Croatia. 
One of her sisters even got in contact with the dairy producers and asked them to print Antonia's photo on the milk cartons, the way it's done in America, but she was told that was not possible. At the same time, the police are starting their own investigation by locating the last signal from Antonia's cell phone. The last signal was pinpointed to be at a highway rest stop area Modrush in the proximity of the town of Ogulin, about 260 kilometers or about three-hour drive away from Drnish, where Antonia was last seen. The signal was captured at 3.38 p.m., which was that phone call her mom had made, after which the phone was switched off. Immediately, the search efforts were focused on that area of the rest stop with police, canine units, mountain rescue service, and a helicopter supporting the search. In one of the trash containers, a black female blazer was found, which later turned out to have nothing to do with the missing girl. The terrain surrounding the rest stop was extremely inaccessible, with thick summer vegetation covering the ground, and the whole area of the rest stop was on a terrain that was elevated from the rest of the nature surrounding it, which meant that there was quite a steep slope just behind the fencing surrounding the rest stop. The rest stop itself had a parking lot for personal vehicles, cars, vans, etc., and a big parking lot for trucks, where a lot of truck drivers would take long breaks or spend the night. It's easy to understand why a truck driver with something to hide would come here. He would not be standing out at all. The police put together a special team dedicated to this investigation and soon they came out with a composite sketch of a suspect based on accounts of two eyewitnesses, the girl who refused a ride from him and Frane Bilic, Antonia's neighbor. They also established a second place of search and rescue efforts, the road between the towns of Trnish and Klis, so the road Antonia would take to go home from Drnish. At the same time, they're combing through hours and hours of CCTV footage from highway exits, border crossings, rest stops and gas stations. The important thing to mention, however, is that the only witness who saw the truck in Drnish when Antonia entered mixed up the color of the driver's cabin and the trailer. So the searchers were initially looking for a truck of a different color combination. This unfortunately inevitably prolonged the whole process and in the end it took the team 13 days to finally locate and identify the truck. The special team also established a tip line specific to this case where citizens could call in with information related to the case. They found that Antonia didn't have money with her or her passport, but the police still informed all surrounding countries to be on the lookout for her. While all of this was going on, so we have two areas of search efforts, police looking through CCTV footage and going through tips, they finally managed to find the truck that was thought to be the one Antonia entered. Using the camera footage, tachograph records and eyewitness testimonies, the police have narrowed down the probable route the truck would have taken 15 days after Antonia's disappearance. When the police approached the company which owned the truck, they gave them the location of it, but the driver driving the truck, when the police finally got to it, was quickly cleared as a suspect because he was not the one driving it at the time of Antonia's disappearance. Soon enough, the police had a name to match the sketch of a driver driving the truck that picked up Antonia. His name was Dragan Paravinja, a dual citizen of Croatia and Serbia, who at the time of this case had an open case with the local police over a dispute with his former employer. The police then decided to locate him and get in contact with him, using the case he opened against his employer as a ruse. Paravinja answered the phone call from a police officer and the officer invited him to the police station for a quick interview regarding his case. However, Paravinja thought this was very suspicious, and instead of talking to the police, he decided to flee. 
Him and his wife left their home in the early hours of June 22nd and drove to the border of Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina in Slavonski Brod. The natural border there is actually the river Sava, one of the biggest in Croatia. So his wife parked the car, he got out, swam over to the other side of the river while his wife crossed the border in the car and then they met up on the other side in a different country. From there, they went to a small village called Doni Sergevici to stay with Paravinya's aunt and uncle. Dragan Paravinya was born on December 10th, 1969, in a Serbian town named Zemun to his parents Ružica and Obrad. He held dual citizenship, Serbian and Croatian, and lived in Croatia in a place named Obrovac. At the time of Antonia's disappearance, he was married and had two sons. His sons were living in Nova Pazova, Serbia, with Dragan's parents. In Serbia, in 2003, Dragan Paravinja was convicted on charges of rape and attempted rape and sentenced to four years and five months in prison. He never served this sentence, however, because after he was released from custody to await the start of his sentence, he escaped to Slovenia, where he lived without interruptions until 2007. In 2007, he applied for asylum, claiming that the charges in Serbia were made up and that he was being set up. Slovenia, however, made a decision to extradite him, but before they could do it, Paravinja fled to Croatia and started a new life there, knowing that as a citizen of Croatia, it was very unlikely he would ever be extradited to Serbia. Croatia was a good place for him to be because he had another warrant out for his arrest, this one in Bosnia and Herzegovina, also on suspicion of rape. This caused a big rift in the family, and the majority of his cousins and relatives wanted nothing to do with him as they should. But the bigger issue here is the fact that his passports were never taken away from him after he was ordered to await the beginning of his prison sentence. Another huge issue is that he was actually arrested twice due to the outstanding warrant made by Serbia. He was arrested once in Germany and once in Slovenia. Both times he was returned to Croatia, not to Serbia, even though the warrant was issued by Serbia. So he continued to live in Croatia, protected like the delicate little flower he was, and we can only guess if and how many times he reoffended during those years. On June 29, 2010, a document was signed in Belgrade between Croatia and Serbia. It focused on extradition of criminals between the two countries, but even with that in place, Paravinja still managed to completely fly under the radar and remained protected in Croatia. Not only that, he was, as we know, raising complaints against his employers with the Croatian police. So let's go back to the police and the truck. Once the police had the truck, the forensic examination could finally begin. At this point, the police had the information that two days after Antonia's disappearance, Paravinja spent three hours meticulously cleaning the cabin of his truck. However, even despite that, two droplets of blood mixed with saliva and a few strands of long black hair were found in the truck. It was later confirmed that both the blood and the hair strands were a match for Antonia's DNA. Apart from that, nothing of significance was found in the truck. The second damning piece of evidence was the comparison between Paravinja's tachograph records on June 7th and the fact that the route recorded by the tachograph matched his phone's and Antonia's phone's pings. So it was basically discovered that their phones traveled together, pinging at the same time around that same rest stop area where Antonia's phone pinged for the last time. So now let's go back to the days after Paravinja's grand escape from Croatia. As we know, he was at the time hiding in the small village named Doni Sergevici. 
The morning after Paravinya arrived, his uncle noticed a police car parking in front of their house. He stepped outside to greet them as he knew some of the local police officers, but was immediately informed that the purpose of their visit was to talk to Dragan, his nephew. Paravinya's uncle had nothing to hide, so he allowed the police to enter his home and talk to Dragan. However, Dragan noticed the police car too, and while his uncle was talking to them at the gate, he slipped out of the house through the back door and ran off into the woods. So the police entered the house and pretty soon realized that Paravinya was not there. However, his aunt was going through the bathroom and in it she found a letter from Paravinya. In the letter, he is talking to his aunt and is asking her for her forgiveness for committing suicide in her home. He also wrote that he has been on the run since 1996 because he has knowledge about war crimes committed during the Homeland War and he is being set up. In the letter, he reassures his aunt that he never told anyone about what he knew about the war crimes. He briefly writes about his sons and his wife and requests that they bury him anywhere but Novapazova. So from all of that, it would appear that he planned to take his own life in his uncle's house. But his story about having knowledge about war crimes just didn't make any sense. So the police instead focused their search on the surrounding area. Paravinya, at the same time, was making his way to the Motaitsa mountain, seeking refuge in the many caverns and thick vegetation of the mountainside. There, he found an abandoned house that used to belong to his distant relative and decided to break in and hide out in it. No one really knows how long he was in the house, but on June 26th, a woman whose family still owned this house came around to check if everything was okay. To her horror, when she opened the door of the living room, she found Paravinya sitting there on the floor, crying and repeating, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. She recognized him as her relative and urged him to turn himself in if he's not guilty, as he was saying. Thankfully, she managed to get out of the house and she ran straight home where she informed her husband of what she saw. He called the police and they had the house surrounded within minutes. Paravinya wanted to flee yet again, but once he saw that he was surrounded, he gave up and surrendered without resisting. So now the police had him in custody. It was expected that he would be transferred to Croatia to answer for his crimes. However, our upstanding citizen Paravinja had an outstanding warrant out for his arrest in Bosnia and Herzegovina as well. And can you guess the charges? That's right, rape. So the extradition to Croatia got postponed while he stood trial in Sarajevo for a crime he eventually got sentenced to two and a half years in prison. He was first taken into custody to Banja Luka, where Croatian detectives, together with their Bosnian colleagues, interrogated Paravinja for the first time. He confessed and gave a written statement in which he again confessed to the murder. I will now read you parts of his written statement. I will read you the literal translation. And then afterwards, we will take a moment to just clear up and uh, explain a few things. Quote, On the road towards Zagreb, on the intersection of the roads Split Drnish and Drnish Šibenik, on the side of the road to my left side, I noticed a girl who was hitchhiking in the opposite direction. I noticed that she was beautiful, with long dark hair, and that she was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I can't remember the color. On the shoulder, she was carrying a female handbag. Upon coming to her vicinity, as my window was rolled down, I asked her, Do you want to come to Zagreb with me? She replied that she wanted to go to Split, after which I drove for about 50 meters, turned my vehicle around and went back to her. 
She entered my truck and we exchanged small talk, during which I was coming on to her. As far as I remember, she was very reserved about my flirtation until we stopped driving. The reason for me stopping the vehicle was because I had the intention to get onto her side of the cabin and I did that by exiting the truck and walking to the passenger side where I tried to calm the girl down, even offering her to get out of the truck. After that, I entered the cabin while the girl had crossed to the driver's seat and was unsuccessfully trying to open the driver's side door, which would not open. After that, she started cussing me out and cursing my Serbian mother. During all of that, she only managed to kick me away a few times. At one point, she tried to exit the cabin by scooting next to me, still loudly cussing me out, and at that point, I lost my temper and grabbed her neck with my hands hard. I can't remember how long I held her, but after that, she no longer resisted and she just relaxed. After that, since I was beside myself, I cannot remember if I had to start the truck or if the engine was on the entire time. I continued moving towards Solin. Then I turned my truck around and started driving in the direction of Zagreb. The girl was in between seats of the truck cabin. During the drive, I made a stop to move the girl to the bed behind the driver's seat, and I continued my drive from Drnish to Kistanje. On that route, I stopped my truck at one of the three bridges over the Kirka River. I entered the truck on the passenger side, took the girl out, and carried her to the railing of the bridge. The railing was especially low, so I just lowered the girl behind it until I was sure the body went to the water or stopped on the river bank. I can't remember what time that was. After that, I continued my ride. At one of the rest stops, the name of which I do not recall, I stopped my truck and disposed of the girl's handbag into one of the dumpsters. I did not open the handbag and had no interest in the contents of the handbag. And I would also like to mention that I did not know the girl's name, nor do I remember her introducing herself." Unquote. The statement he wrote is very long, so I won't read the whole thing. But the most important part of the statement is his confes uh, confession of the murder and also his confession of where he disposed of her body. The part he never confessed to or even mentioned is the question of rape or his intention to rape Antonia. But because we know his history and the fact that he is a convicted rapist, it really isn't a reach to assume that he, you know, he had those intentions, even if nothing happened, and that it all went sort of too far. Now, another thing I would like to address is the fact that he said that he lost his temper when she cursed his Serbian mother. I would just like to offer some context to that. Balkans, so this area of the world, is really the place with the most vile, graphic and numerous swear words and phrases you can imagine. We use everything from body parts, family relations, God, religion, nationality, to the usual swear words to express our frustration and even the slightest inconvenience. The way he worded it in his statement makes it sound like she said something completely outrageous to him, which sent him into this frustration such that he could not control himself. I can assure you, whatever she said to him is not something he didn't regularly hear and even say to others. Nationality is a huge source of identity and pride in this part of the world, and especially since the homeland war was still so fresh at the time. Croatia fought against Serbia, so insults and curses on the topic of nationality are in no way a rare occurrence. And let's not forget that Antonia's family and the whole village 
were directly affected by the war because they were displaced for a few years because of Serbian occupation. So the fact that he used her insulting him on a national level as some sort of excuse for for why he lost his temper is quite frankly ridiculous. There's no excuse for any murder, in my eyes. But stooping so low and trying to claim that she somehow pushed it too far with that one curse phrase and that if she hadn't, she might still be alive is preposterous. He is a convicted rapist with clear narcissistic tendencies and aggression. So the most likely reason for him losing his temper was just the mere fact that she was yet another beautiful woman who did not respond well and was most likely even disgusted by his flirting and seduction attempts. Let's talk about the rest of his statement and what other information he gave. Firstly, he starts his statement with some background and context on why he was even driving that particular route that day and how he found himself in the area. Then he gives a detailed confession of the murder and the disposal of the body, which I read earlier, and then goes on to say that he then drove to the warehouse where his truck was unloaded, then drove back home, showered, changed, ate dinner, and then started driving again before stopping close to Knin, where he spent the night in his truck. He wrote that he is not sure if Antonia had a phone and that he didn't notice her using it. He said that he learned about her name from the media and that he told no one about what he has done. He then mentions that he did not clean the cabin of the truck and he also talks about the windscreen repair being done on the same truck in the days following Antonia's disappearance. He then touches on the topic of the tachograph record from the day of June 7th, which, as he admits, he gave to his wife. Those records serve a purpose of logging the routes and hours spent driving and resting. So it is actually an important document, which shouldn't just be discarded. In fact, he was most likely under obligation to hand in his tachograph records to his employer, but he excuses it, saying everyone else does it too. Moving on, uh, he remembers that he picked up another hitchhiker a year prior, in June 2010. He remembers her as being attractive and of questionable morals. In his words, not mine, she had long dark hair. According to him, they engaged in intimate conversations and contact, but she rejected his sexual advances. Towards the end of his statement, he touches on the topic of him fleeing the country by admitting he was alarmed by the phone call he received from the police officer. He claims he drove to Slavonsky Brod to the border crossing, bought a neoprene suit and some flippers, swam across the river Sava, then met his wife on the other side of the border. At the very end of the statement, he sketched a map of where he put Antonia's body and signed the statement. And it is also important to mention that an attorney was present for all of this. After his statement, while he waited to be sentenced for rape and be extradited to Croatia, the search for Antonia's body intensified and reached a whole new level. A new focus on the search was now the river Krka in all the places close to the road and bridges. I remember those days so vividly too. I think most of us who were following the case felt that her body would be found within a day or two after his confession and finally put to rest. However, as the days went on and search efforts weren't bringing up anything relevant, it slowly became obvious to everyone that Paravinya lied about where he placed her body. It was as if he mocked her, her death, the grief of her family and friends, and quite frankly, the entire nation's efforts to find her and bring her home. After massive search efforts, which included draining a lake, guys, draining a lake, searching through an entire reservoir, and searching almost the entire route that Paravinya drove that day, didn't bring forward any kind of discovery. The hope slowly but surely faded away. On July 22nd, Paravinya was transferred to Croatia and began his last and final act of mockery with the victim, her family, and the public. 
His first trial concluded on October 19, 2012, after denying that he had anything to do with Antonia's death, rescinding his sworn statement, claiming that the confession was beaten out of him and that all the evidence against him was planted, he was sentenced to a maximum sentence of 40 years in prison on one count of murder and two counts of attempted rape. During his sentencing, he mockingly clapped for the judge and offered a few political remarks. After the first trial, he went on a hunger strike, then swallowed some razors. The Supreme Court of Croatia overruled parts of his verdict and he went to trial again. His second trial brought the same verdict and the same 40-year sentence and the Supreme Court again overruled it. It is hard to say if there was even one court appearance by Paravinja during which he acted respectfully. He once came to the court proceedings dressed in shorts and flip-flops. He pushed and yelled at the court security officer. He had a few spats with other prisoners, spent some time at the hospital for effing around and finding out, and generally just made sure his name was in the media for the sole reason of being a disgusting human being. In March 2016, his 40-year sentence was confirmed for the third time, only to be struck by the Supreme Court once again in 2017, and his sentence was then lowered to 20 years in prison. He is currently serving time in Lepoglava Penitentiary in Lepoglava, Croatia. It is the hope of many people, myself included, that once his prison sentence is up, he will be extradited to Serbia to serve time for the crime he was convicted for in 2003. He is now, effectively, a convicted rapist in three neighboring countries. After Paravinja's first trial concluded towards the end of 2012 and search efforts had been shut down, when the family finally had some sort of closure and probably allowed themselves some long-awaited peace to grieve, after the constant press buzz had finally died down a bit. On November 28, 2012, two villagers riding in a tractor approached a pull-off on a local road in a place called Fulai, not far from the Modrush rest stop we were mentioning earlier. They stopped to relieve themselves into the bushes when one of them noticed a human skull about two to three meters from where he was standing. They found a skull without the lower jaw, then picked up the skull and looked around. They immediately spotted a lower jaw with teeth and another bone. At that point, they called the police. They said their attention was first drawn to the small, bright yellow item that stood out in the bleak, leafless bushes. They went to check what it is and realized it was a hairband with pieces of hair or skin on it. The police secured the site and immediately upon starting their search found a pair of blue jeans. As the time went on, the number of bones and bone fragments they found kept growing and they soon started to understand that there is most likely an entire skeleton scattered around in a small area. Strands of long dark hair were also discovered on the branches of the bushes. As it got dark, the fire department brought out floodlights that allowed the search to go on into the night and it continued all the way until the next morning. Search and rescue services, as well as two search dogs, assisted in the search. The questions of why and how the bones were found in this area if the search efforts were focused around here immediately started spreading in the media and the public. It was revealed that the bones were found right next to a simple pull-off where there was barely room for a truck or a few cars. There was no infrastructure there and the pull-off was not paved, but the locals said that it wasn't unusual to see trucks parked there during the night. There were a lot of suspicions about how it was possible for a body to remain undiscovered for almost a year and a half in an area that wasn't completely remote. First of all, 
the remains were found in relative proximity to a road in the bushes that separate the road from the farming fields that were regularly farmed during that time period. Secondly, this area should have been the focus of search and rescue teams back in the summer of 2011 because the tachograph records taken from Paravinha's truck from the day of Antonia's disappearance confirmed he was in this location. And lastly, the body was not buried at all, nor were there any visible efforts of concealment. So the assumption is that the body was just placed there in the bushes. As talk of the bones being moved to the area where they were found from some other place intensified, the officials finally came out to clarify a few things. It was confirmed that the road in question has been the focus of the search, with teams searching the area on the side of the road. All the pull-offs were also searched. However, the one where Antonia's remains were found was not checked by a search dog which assisted the searchers during the search operation. Another police official told the media that while the search efforts were going on, some areas were not searched in a grid search pattern, but were searched by just a quick visual inspection of the area. Another thing to consider was the fact that the area was also a trash dumping spot for truckers and that there was a lot of waste there, especially in the summer months. On top of that, Antonia disappeared in the summer when the vegetation looked a lot different. The summer heat also made the entire trash dump area smell bad, so the usual smell of a decomposing body would be somewhat masked by the waste, or the sheer sight of trash could be the explanation for the bad odor. And lastly, the way the bones were scattered pointed to some animal activity as well, which could have also concealed some more prominent body parts for a longer amount of time. In a few days, the DNA results confirmed that the remains were indeed those of Antonia Bilic. Her remains were then handed over to the family, and on December 5th, 2012, Antonia was finally laid to rest, surrounded by her loved ones. In an unprecedented sign of respect and gratitude, the family has asked the members of the Croatian Mountain Rescue Service, who relentlessly searched for Antonia in the biggest search and rescue operation in the history of Croatia, to carry Antonia's coffin. They also asked the public to send donations to the Croatian Mountain Rescue Service in lieu of flowers. It has been over a decade since Antonia's disappearance, and even though her family did get some closure, the sad reality is that nothing can ever truly replace Antonia. Antonia's family is one of those families that has been through so much and came out of it whole, intact, and seemingly stronger than before. And then in the most brutal and cruel turn of fate, they lost the baby of the family at the brink of her adulthood. As someone who consumes true crime content regularly, I have to admit that I have become slightly desensitized to the tragedy that comes with losing a life. But this case has really ignited something within me. We have a young girl who was just about to start her life, who was about one step away from the beginning of her adult life, from experiencing the beauty of adult friendships, from falling in love, maybe marrying and experiencing the joy of starting a family. We don't even know what kind of life was taken from her. Maybe she would have become a singer, maybe a mother. Maybe she would have worked for the good of her community. Maybe she would have stayed home and taken care of her parents as they aged. With any life that has been lost, we just can't know what kind of future was taken away from them. But what made this case exceptionally sad for me was the hubris and utter cruelty of Antonia's murderer. He has found a way to insert himself into every 
aspect of this case. He fled. He hid. He left a farewell note and wanted us to feel sad for him for contemplating suicide. He inserted himself even into the painful memory of the homeland war by claiming that all of this was happening to him because he had some sort of knowledge of the war crimes committed. Guys, he wasn't even a part of that war. He got caught. He had an opportunity to make sure Antonia was found and her family got some closure. But instead, he sent the search and rescue services into an impossible mission to look for Antonia in a place he knew they wouldn't find her. He wasted precious resources that could have potentially been used to aid in some other search operation. And when all of it was said and done, in the face of all the evidence, three trials that all concluded with him being found guilty, he said, no, it was a setup. He has repeatedly mocked Antonia's memory, her family, and the public. He has shown absolutely no remorse and no respect or concern for anyone but himself. My hope is that Antonia's memory lives on and that the lessons we learned stay with us forever. I hope that her family was able to find peace and that they feel proud of their two older daughters who made sure that the entire nation knew about and was looking for Antonia, and that they also feel proud for choosing the dignified, silent path of honoring Antonia instead of exploiting her memory. Guys, thank you so much for sticking with this case till the end. I hope you come back for another episode next week, and if it's not too much, Please interact with this episode, like it, share it, subscribe, comment, and let's get Antonia's story to more people. Until next week, keep yourselves and others safe. Bye.